chapter 19, verses 14 to 20 and 32 to 37. Uh, it's printed inside your bulletin, so you can follow along as I read it aloud. This is the word of the Lord. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then jumping forward to verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount, uh, mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And she, he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's just pray a brief moment before we, uh, we get into the sermon. Let's pray together. God, we know that your word is good. And it's good because it tells us not only uh, of your will for us, but it tells us about who you are. And uh, if there's anything all of us need here today, it's to be reminded of who you are. It's to know uh, what you've done for us in Christ. And so we pray for this time that you would open uh, not only our minds, but uh, you would open our hearts to receive your word, uh, to receive the gospel, and to be refreshed and renewed and challenged and trained by it uh, this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, what we're doing in the fall here at Good News Church is we're focusing on prayer, and we want to grow together as a congregation in the area of prayer. And so in the fall, the way we're doing this through the sermon series, we're just kind of going through scripture, and we're looking at different prayers in the Bible, and uh, we're preaching through various prayers in the Bible. Now, as I was planning this series uh, from the beginning, I didn't exactly know where the series would take us. Uh, I just looked through the Bible and saw the various prayers, but as we've gone through different prayers uh, during the course of the last couple of weeks, I do think that providentially God has given us prayers that we need to pray. Abraham interceded on behalf of, his, of, of the city of Sodom, and I think we need to pray and intercede on behalf of our city. Moses prayed to God saying, show me your glory. I think that's what we need as well. We need to pray that God would show us his glory. 
Hannah prayed in her deep anguish and her deep distress. I think we need to come to God in prayer in our deep distress. David repented in his prayers for his sin and transgressions, and we also need to lift up prayers of repentance as well. But you know, where this series actually started was a reflection on Psalm 46, and part of it we read in the beginning of our service in the call to worship. Psalm 46 is uh, famous for that line that we, we read today. It says, Be still and know that I am God. And we had said that sometimes it's easy to miss the full meaning of what that verse is actually trying to say. Uh, we're supposed to be still because God is powerful. He uh, inspires awe. And that psalm, according to some commentators, they think is actually linked to this story. And after reading a story like this and what God did to an army of Assyrians, uh, the response of Psalm 46 is basically, come behold the works of God, be still and know that I am God. Now, one of the reasons why I thought we needed to grow in prayer is because I'm not really sure we as a congregation believe in the power of God. We would say it, yes, of course, but I don't know if in our heart of hearts we believe in the power of God. I think maybe we believe in the wisdom of God, we believe in the goodness of God, we believe in the love of God, but do we believe that God is powerful, that he's powerful? You know, if we don't, then that might actually be one of the reasons why, uh, if you are struggling with prayer, that could be one of the reasons why you are struggling with prayer. And, you know, I've said this a few times, but uh, it's, it's a constant prayer of mine ever since the summer for our church, and I've been asking God, God, Grow us in prayer. Teach us how to pray. Make us delight in prayer. But the thing is, I think if God answers that prayer, I suspect uh, one of the ways he may do that and teach us how to pray is actually going to be through some struggle and through hardship. I actually think that's how a lot of people learn to pray. Uh, you know, Tim Keller, a uh, popular pastor here in New York City, uh, I, I, I was hearing a talk that he gave on prayer, and he he openly admitted he said you know what for decades in my ministry for decades uh, I was a hypocrite every time I talked and preached about prayer my prayer life wasn't all that great but he said you know what the turning point was when his wife started getting sick and the turning point was when she had all these health issues and was in and out of the hospital and that's when he uh, really experienced a deep prayer and the necessity of prayer I think oftentimes that's what happens you know, I read this a book about prayer this week, very short book, and you know, the author told this uh, story about the turning point in his life when he finally learned how to pray. And it, ha it happened when he was a pastor. It happened when he was getting ready to actually plant a church. And in his life, suddenly his 32-year-old brother died with no explanation, no cause of death, no foul play. He just died, and nobody knew why. And, uh, you know, I want to give you the story of in his words because I think in his words it's, a, it's actually more powerful and you can feel the heartache in it, but at the same time you can feel the hope in it as well. Um, just bear with me. This is a little bit of a long passage, but just pretend he's here speaking to you. This is what he says. For the first time in my life, I felt like all the wind was taken out of me. I couldn't breathe. If you've ever had the wind knocked out of you, then you know just how much it complicates everything. But this tragedy in God's grace was the best thing that could have happened for my relationship with the Lord. God used a terrible situation to birth a wonderful thing in me. I'm crying right now for the first time in months. I thought I had worked through my brother's death, but my heart is still incredibly tender as I reflect on this. Having the wind knocked out of me literally and figuratively was a tool God used to help me understand that prayer is breathing. My filter vanished as my tongue was unhinged in prayer. 
I was both shocked and relieved, ashamed and angry at the words coming out of my mouth. I called God a liar. He seemed cruel and uncaring. Then in the same breath, I asked him to shower me with grace. I felt disdain, anger, hatred, and I told him. I couldn't help but tell him. It all just kept coming out. Pain felt like a truth serum that forced me to confess all my unworthy thoughts of him. And he took it, every ounce of it. He corrected my negative view, not with words of rebuke, but words of consolation. While I was drowning in sorrow, he emptied my oxygen tank to force me to come up for air. When I came up to him, I wasn't met with the cold shoulder I deserved, but with open arms. Whatever I was doing before wasn't praying. It was formal, cold, sterile, rehearsed, and wrote. For the first time in my life, I felt like I knew what it was to pray, to commune with God. When I offered the cares of my heart, every one of them, I met a God who wasn't as scared to take those cares on as I was to share them. If you have been through anything like that, uh, I you probably can relate. Uh, the conflicting emotions of, God, I need your help, but at the same time, how could, how could you do this to me, God? And it is coming to prayer. I mean, that, that was the moment, to the turning point for him, a pastor getting ready to plant a church. That was his turning point in terms of learning how to pray. You know, throughout the book, he likens prayer to breathing. And I think that's a great illustration of what it means to pray. It is the lifeblood of a Christian. It is the lifeblood of a believer. It is the very lifeblood of a church. And yet, breathing is somewhat routine and normal, is it not? It's, uh, it's not meant to be done just for special occasions. It's supposed to be something that is constant and ordinary and routine. And if it's not constant and if it's not routine, then guess what? most likely the person is not alive because they're not breathing, and breathing is what gives life. Prayer is, a, is like that. It's like breathing. When you find yourself drowning in the hardships of life and gasping for air, that is a moment where you might cry out asking for someone to help you, someone to save you. And you see, that's actually what Hezekiah is doing here in this prayer. And you see it in verse 19. He says, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, save us, please, from his hand. He is in a place of desperation, and he is asking God to, to save his people. Now, what leads him to pray such a prayer of desperation? Well, as I've said, I've been living in First and Second Kings for a while because uh, we're going through it in our Bible studies and it's really a fascinating book. It's really an interesting book and an interesting story. Uh, you know, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but my wife does. But I know a little bit about, I guess, the storyline of Game of Thrones. If you've watched Game of Thrones, First uh, and Second Kings, I think, is a little bit like Game of Thrones because there's a lot of family drama. There's a lot of political drama. There's kingdoms battling one another. And, of course, there's a lot of sin. And essentially what... First and Second Kings is about, it's about the decline of the kingdom of Israel as the, the kingdom divides and eventually gets overtaken by these foreign empires. You see, at this point of the story, it's somewhat late in the story, so the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen at this point. It, they, they fall actually during Hezekiah's reign, and now Assyria, which has overtaken the northern kingdom, has set their sights upon the southern kingdom of Judah, and the king of Assyria is like, I'm coming for you, right? I'm coming for you, Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah, you know, he's actually one of the good kings in a long list of, you know, pretty bad kings. And during his reign, uh, one of the things that he does is he removes uh, high places. He cuts down the Asherah. And that basically means he got rid of idol worship amongst the people of God. 
But, you know, Hezekiah, he faces a difficult moment in his reign, and in many ways, it actually parallels uh, David. Hezekiah, he's kind of a huge underdog. He faces these overwhelming odds against this huge, growing Assyrian empire that is just getting stronger and stronger. Their army is stronger. They have more people in their army. They have more military resources. And likewise, what was David? David was an overwhelming underdog to somebody like Goliath. Goliath was stronger, Goliath was bigger, and Goliath had better armor. And yet, David beat Goliath. How? It's not because David is kind of like a rocky figure and uh, he, he had the heart to go the distance. That's not what the story says, but the reason David beat Goliath is because God won the battle for him. God was with him. In fact, in his fight against Goliath, David actually tells Goliath, he says this, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord same phrase, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our land. That's what David says to Goliath, and if you know the story, you know the ending. David takes a sling, and he kills Goliath, and the Philistines lose. Now, the reason why uh, <coughs> David is able to win is because, what he says in the last line, the battle belongs to the Lord. Therefore, the victory belongs to the Lord as well. Hezekiah here, he's facing similar odds against a powerful Assyrian empire, and it would actually serve him well to remember David's words here. The battle belongs to the Lord. Hezekiah, victory is not in your hands. Victory is in God's hands. Now, Hezekiah, he was a good king, but he made some mistakes as well. And at first, he didn't remember that. In uh, chapter 18, in the previous chapter, Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, you know, he attacks Judah, and he comes to Judah, and in response, Hezekiah says, uh, Sennacherib, tell me what you want. Uh, I'll pay you whatever you want if you just get out of here, if you withdraw from this place. And, you know, it's kind of like a store owner paying the mob for some uh, protection, a protection fee, so they don't destroy this, their store. And uh, Hezekiah is doing that, and the king of Assyria says, you know what, okay, give me 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, which is the equivalent of about 22,000 pounds of silver and 2,200 pounds of gold. But you know what <coughs> Hezekiah does in order to pay uh, Assyrian Assyria? He empties out his treasury, and then he begins to strip gold from the temple, the temple that Solomon built, in order to pay this hefty fee. And even though Hezekiah is known as a good king, this actually was not a great moment for him because he is using the house of the Lord, the place of worship, as a means to pay off the Assyrian empire. You know, that mistake's going to be exposed soon because the Assyrians, they wouldn't be satisfied with that payment. They come back. Sennacherib sends someone called uh, the Rabshakeh. <laughs> I love that name, the Rabshakeh. And the Rabshakeh is basically like this government official, this delegate who represents the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh comes, and he comes to Hezekiah, and you know what he does? He starts to talk some smack. He's talking some trash to, uh, to Hezekiah, and he says things like this, you know, who do you think is going to help you? Uh, Egypt? You think Egypt's going to help you? 
here's what I'm going to do. I will give you 2,000 horses, and let's see if you can find enough people in your army to actually ride them. That's like saying in the modern day, I'm going to give you 2,000 tanks. Let's see if you can find 2,000 people to drive them. How are you going to beat us, the Assyrian Empire, when you are so small and when you are so weak? Right? He's talking trash. He's talking smack. And then uh, he gets really vulgar, and uh, he says this. He says, your men are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Right? Really vulgar stuff. Now, in sports, if you've played sports, if you know sports, people talk trash all the time, right? Uh, that's usually a way that you assert your dominance. Uh, Larry Bird, who was, a, who was a basketball legend, is supposedly one of the best tra trash talkers in the NBA. And uh, he would tell opposing players, he's like, you know what? I'm going to score 40 on you tonight. This is in the beginning of the game. I feel like scoring 40 on you tonight. And then he would go and do it. Uh, if it was uh, after a timeout and there was like, a game-winning shot, he would tell the opposing player, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the ball here, and then I'm going to shoot it, and we're going to win the game. And then that's actually what would happen, and he would shoot it, and he would win the game. I read a story where uh, Dennis Rodman was guarding him, and I think Dennis Rodman was a rookie at the time, and Larry Bird was absolutely dominating Dennis Rodman. And so what Larry Bird would say, he would say to the opposing coach, Coach, why are you leaving me so open? Why aren't you putting anybody on me? Why isn't anybody guarding me? And in the meantime, Dennis Rodman's like doing his best, right, to try to guard him. He's like, come on, put somebody <laughs> on me. And then he would tell his teammates, right, when Dennis Rodman's guarding him, he would say, hey, guys, I'm, I'm open. Nobody's guarding me, right? And Dennis Rodman's telling the story of how Larry Bird would talk trash. You know, <clears throat> that's how you assert your dominance, right? If you're great, if you're in competition, you talk trash and you dominate a person and you demoralize them. I heard Michael Jordan was a pretty good trash talker too, but I also hear a lot of players say, you know, you don't talk trash with Michael Jordan. You know why? Because he's great and you don't want to set him off because once you set him off, you know it's over. And there's, a, there's kind of a dynamic that's going on there when you talk trash and there's a similar dynamic here. The Assyrian Empire is really strong and the Rabshakeh feels and knows that the Assyrian Empire is in such a dominant position and he takes advantage of that moment, and he talks trash. And he wants to demo demoralize Hezekiah and the people. And, he, and then he says to Hezekiah's people, he goes, you know, don't listen to your king. Uh, come, come to us, right? Come and make peace with the king of Assyria. We'll feed you. We'll provide for you. Don't believe what Hezekiah tells you when he says, the Lord will deliver you. Are you kidding me? The Lord <laughs> will deliver you? Right? And they begin to mock not only Hezekiah, but they mock the God of Israel. You know, when the Psalms talk about mockers, it's talking about people like this, right? This is a guy that's mocking God and mocking his people. <coughs> now, if you're somebody on the receiving end of trash talking, and if you have been dominated, if you look at somebody and you go, wow, they're, they're much more dominant than I am, how would you feel? You probably feel a little bit demoralized. But you see, that's when it's important to remember what God has already done to this point and how he has done it. This is a God who made Pharaoh set free the Israelites from slavery. This is a God who gave victory to David over Goliath. This is a God who answered Elijah when he was up against th thousands of prophets of Baal. This is the God of Israel who is a God of power, and therefore they should not be afraid. And so what does Hezekiah do after right, receiving all this trash talk? He does the only thing he could do. He prays. He prays. Now, I think it's significant here that when we read in our passage, 
He enters the house of the Lord in order to pray because it means this. He's restoring the true purpose of the temple. Remember before he stripped it for its gold? Now, now he uses it as a house of prayer. In the house of the Lord, he takes this letter that he receives from the Assyrian messenger, he, he spreads it before the Lord, and he begins to pray. Well, what does he pray? Well, first he identifies who God is. This is the God of Israel, the one who is enthroned, the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. He is a creator. He is the one who made heaven and earth. And if indeed that is who God is, no kingdom can stand up against him. Second thing he prays, he asks God, incline your ear. In other words, he's asking God, come on, hear my prayer. Look what is going on. You see, those first two parts of his prayer really form an important theological foundation for prayer at all. We pray because of who God is. He is creator. He is king over all of creation. All things happen by his very word and power. And second, not only is he powerful, but God hears. He hears our cries. He's not disconnected from distress, but he sees it. And just as he heard the cries of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt, he would hear the cries of Hezekiah under the threat of the mighty Assyrian army. And finally, what does he do in verse 19? He makes his request known to God, and he says, So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. If you've ever prayed in desperate circumstances, you know, right, you know how genuine those kind of prayers are. You know when you get to a point of rock bottom and there is absolutely nothing you can do except to say, God, right, please help, please help. You pray that kind of prayer when you've run out of all other options. You pray that kind of prayer when you come to the stark realization that you are not in control. You pray that kind of prayer when you have reached the end of your rope. And even though nobody here enjoys being in that kind of situation, being stripped of our strength and feeling unanchored at times, those are the moments actually where we see spiritual reality for as, as it actually is. Because here's the, the reality of things. Our lives are not anchored if we are not anchored to God. We have no strength if we are not finding our strength in God. We have no salvation if that salvation is not coming from God. But you see, we often live our lives as if that were not the spiritual reality, right? We live as though we are strong. We are self-sufficient. We are in control of our own destiny. The problem is we, we're just not trying hard enough. And so what we need to do is we need to try harder. You see, Hezekiah tried that, and he tried to solve the Assyrian problem his own way. And guess what? It didn't work for him. In a moment of desperation, he goes to God in prayer, and he encounters a God of power. God hears Hezekiah's prayer. We know that because that's what the prophet Isaiah tells him, that the king of Assyria will not come into Jerusalem God will defend this city for his own sake and for the sake of David. And what happens that night? An angel of the Lord goes out, strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's a large army. Large army is struck down. Jerusalem is safe from slaughter and conquest. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he ends up leaving and living in Nineveh, not in Jerusalem. That's the power of God, friends. That's the power that Psalm 46 
is referring to when it says, come and behold the works of God. This is the <laughs> works of God. That's the power of God that ought to make us be still and know that he is God. That is the power of God that should encourage us and call us to be a people of prayer. You know, God's power, I think many of us, has this uncomfortable component of destruction, right? Especially when we read stories in the Old Testament. But you know, that destruction, there's also a, uh, another side of the coin. It's through that destruction oftentimes that salvation comes for the people of God. You see, here we see the power of God displayed in the destruction of the Assyrian army. In other stories, the power of God is displayed at Passover. The power of God is displayed in defeating the Canaanites. The power of God is displayed by destroying Goliath and the Philistines. The power of God is displayed here by the destruction of the Assyrian army. But it's through that destruction that life and salvation actually comes to the people of Israel, to the very people of God. Now, when you get to the New Testament, do you see that kind of power displayed? And I would say you certainly do. But when you get to the New Testament, that power of destruction is now directed to Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's what the cross is all about. And it's through the destruction of Jesus that life and salvation now comes to the entire world. The power of the cross is the way of salvation for the people of God. Now, I want us to think about this a little bit. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, who, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. The cross displays God's power, but there is a little bit of a nuance there in that some people are not going to see the cross as the power of God. Some people will look at the cross and they're going to think it's foolishness. Some people will look at the cross and they'll say, that's a sign of weakness because on the surface, here's what it looks like to me. It displays a powerless Jesus who is subjecting himself to the powers of death upon a cross. But Paul is saying this, even though some people are going to look at the cross and see it as foolishness, see it as weakness, the cross in reality is a great display of the very power of God. Why? You see, it is through the cross where sin and death are vanquished and defeated. It is through the cross where Satan and the principalities of evil would be thrown down. It is through the cross where the temple curtain is torn in two and the presence of God is now unleashed and the glory of God is unleashed into the world by way of the Holy Spirit. You see, the kind of power in the cross is actually cosmic in scope. And you see, no amount of money, no amount of status, no amount of talent, skill, privilege, worldly power, any of that is going to be able to accomplish what the cross was able to accomplish. And you think about it, what did it take? It took Jesus using his divine strength in order to stay weak. Think about that. It actually took power. It actually took strength for Jesus to be weak, to stay weak, to remain helpless, to subject himself to death, to bear the weight of our sin upon himself. That's why the cross is a great display of the power of God in the destruction of his very son. 
Now, if you've been in church for a while, uh, you might think, of course, the cross is the power of God. Maybe you've heard this before. I know that. I know that's true. But do you really? Do you really know that's true? Here's some questions you can ask yourself and test whether you believe that the cross is the power of God. Are you weak? Are you vulnerable? Can you freely admit your sin and confess it? Do you know that you need help? Do you know that you need accountability in order to battle sin? Do you embrace weakness in yourself and even in others? Or do you try to defend yourself and justify yourself all the time? Do you try to hold power over those who are weaker than you? Do you try to pretend that you have life together all the time, that nothing bothers you? Do you try to solve your issues all on your own and by your own strength? Do you think you're untouchable with respect to falling into certain kinds of sin? You know, if you're in the latter category, you may not really believe in the power of the cross. You may not believe that the cross is actually the power of God. You may see the cross as something that is weak because you see yourself as someone who is ultimately strong. You see the cross like the Greeks did, and in your heart of hearts, you say, that is folly. The way of the cross is folly. The life of the cross is folly. And if you see the cross that way, then you will end up being the fool in God's eyes. What does a fool look like? It looks like somebody who doesn't feel the need to pray. That's what a fool looks like. Are we a church of fools or are we a church that believes in the power of God displayed through the mighty cross? Are we a church who prays? I think those are the only two options. And I certainly and sincerely hope that we fall in the latter. Friends, I know, uh, you know, if, you're, uh, if you've been in church for a long time, uh, you're probably used to say, you know, coming to church with kind of like your Sunday face and, oh, everything's great. Mm, at least as a pastor, I know that's probably not true for most people. And most people are struggling. Most people feel weak. Most people are even struggling with their faith. Uh, people are struggling with sin, sin that's hidden, sin that's unknown. Uh, a lot of things happen in, t in the week that you're not proud of, that you're not happy about. Well, you know what a fool is? A fool is a person that says, let me continue to live my life in that way and live this kind of mirage. A wise person is, let me live my life according to the cross. I come here weak, broken, struggling, hurting, and I need help. Save me, O oh God. And if we can be that kind of church, there's a lot of spiritual power in that. And I think God will honor that. Let's pray together.